Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Imagine that you're sitting at home on your computer. And you get an email. And the email says, have you seen this? And he clicks on it. And inside is an article from a local news station in Denver. And it's an article that has a video embedded into it. And he clicks the video. And the guy clicking the link, that's John Bergman. He sees a scene from the Capitol riots. And he sees one figure in particular appearing to drag a police officer down the steps. And this email is telling John that the figure in the video is his longtime friend. His friend of 18 years. Jeff Sable. The allegations in this newest case are actually pretty serious. One of the most disturbing scenes to come out of the Capitol riot. Jeffrey Sable is accused of pulling down a Capitol police officer. John can't believe what he's saying. He doesn't understand how someone he's known and thought of in pretty much an entirely positive way as a great friend, a decent person, an an intelligent guy. He doesn't understand how this could happen. Just a huge sense of what the heck disbelief. I'm Rachel Bade. This is Playbook Deep Dive. Now imagine that anyone at the January 6th insurrection could have been your friend, your neighbor, the guy next door. My name is Melanie Warner. Melanie Warner is a reporter in Colorado where the story takes place. It was a story that I thought was going to be a lot easier than it was. This week, the first January 6th report from the Senate Homeland Security and Rules Committees landed on Capitol Hill. Although that report sheds light on a scope of the intelligence failures by Capitol Police and law enforcement, there's just as much that the report doesn't answer, like who exactly were the individuals that participated. How does someone cross that threshold from belief to action? Of the millions of people who believed the lie that the election was stolen, thousands converged on Washington that day to protest. Of these, around 800 stormed the Capitol, and of these, Prosecutors allege that approximately 100 acted violently. Jeff Sable is one of them. A mob attacking an officer. Prosecutors say he pulled the officer down some stairs, allowing the mob to swarm and attack. So who is Jeff Sable? That's, I mean, it's like answering that question about anyone. It's... It's complicated um, trying to figure out who someone really is. Do they have multiple sides of their personalities? We know he's a geophysicist. And he's been doing this for 20 years. So he has a stable career. He's only worked at two companies. So he has a good job. He's a dad. He has three teenage children, two girls and a boy. He drives a really old truck. Blue Ford F-150 his friends always tried to get him to buy a new truck, and he refused. He always said, oh, that's good enough. And everyone in Kittredge 
remembers him as driving this beat-up old blue pickup truck. And he lives in a tiny Colorado town called Kittredge. It's about 40 minutes outside of Denver. A politically diverse but left-leaning place. It's a quiet, nice place where people go to live and raise their families. Population, 1,300. You know, literally, you do a Google search on this town, you don't find anything. Like, nothing happens there. Experts from the Center on Extremism at George Washington University say that trying to understand what makes someone turn violent is their white whale, which is why Melanie wanted to profile this one guy. I think I was interested in the story because he's a guy who has so much to lose in his life by going to the Capitol and doing what he did. So as the fallout from January 6th continues, with high-ranking Capitol Police officers resigning and a separate commission to study January 6th dead in the water in Congress, buckle up your seatbelts because we're about to dive deep into one man's story and what it reveals about January 6th and how likely it is to happen again. He's alleged to have been involved in a scene that prosecutors are saying is one of the most violent from that day. Jeff's alleged crime took place after the first wave of violence, later, around 4.30 p.m. When reinforcements from officers were, from the Metropolitan Police, were already called in. Rioters were amassing on the west entrance at the time. Police had pushed them out, and they were trying to get back in. They were actively fighting with the police officers that were right there at that tunnel entrance. The videos are part of the case against Jeff. You see him appearing to um, drag a police officer, the same video that his friend John Bergman saw, drag a police officer down the steps and then run back up a few seconds later and take a baton from another police officer who then is dragged down by another individual who is part of the same kind of bundled indictment uh, for a court case. And then that officer is beaten with a flagpole, crutches, and the officer later needs to go to the hospital to get a, a significant wound closed with staples. So he is facing some pretty serious charges. Um, there are a lot of people that are charged in the Capitol riots that just went into the building. He is charged with violent acts specifically against police officers. So it's pretty, he's in pretty hot water right now. Do you think he planned to storm the Capitol or was he just caught up in something? And do you have any clues about how many people came there to actually break into the halls of Congress? It's such an interesting question. And I really thought a lot about this when I was doing the story. It's really hard to, to know what's in someone's mind without talking to them, which I wasn't able to do. His lawyer argues that he came to the Capitol with steel-toed boots on, which he did. It's in the indictment, and the the lawyer is not denying it. Steel-toed boots, a radio, a two-way radio in his bag. He even had zip ties. Uh, he had a tactical helmet on. And he looked like he was ready for something, right? He wasn't just – you don't dress like that if you're just showing up for a political rally. And the lawyer alleges that he was doing that because he was – concerned that he was going to encounter um, Antifa counter-protesters, which he had encountered. He went the first stop, the steel rally, 
in mid-December where there were counter-protesters and clashes with some of the right-wing folks and the left-wing folks. So it's plausible that he went to the Capitol with the intention of going to the rally, and maybe he was going to be ready if something broke out with counter-protesters, and that it's possible he had no intention of attacking police officers, and that he could have gotten just caught up in the moment trying to break down the police lines and trying to get back into the building. I don't know that that's the real story, but it's it's possible. Okay. What did you learn about his radicalization? Do you know what his media diet was? He was not a big user of social media at all. Um, there's really no trace of anything on on Twitter, Facebook, Parler, any of those any of those platforms. Um, so it's it's hard to figure out what exactly motivated him ideologically. But there were a few clues that I was able to to get at. One appears to be that he um, was motivated by a sense of grievance, I guess you could call it, about the military-industrial complex. As I mentioned, he worked on military sites uh, cleaning up all these munitions, uh, essentially wasted munitions that were never exploded. And you could see how someone might develop, if you did that for 20 years, you might develop a sense of criticism of the massive amounts of government spending. So that appears to have been one of one of his motivations. I think he just was someone who, like a lot of people on the right, have a, have a sense of wariness about big government and big government overreach. And so um, you have that, and then you also have a, a sense, he's registered as an independent, but according to people in his life, especially um, his ex-wife, he really disliked Democrats. Just did not, he was identified as a hardcore conservative. He did not like President Obama. His wife said that he wrote a number of emails to the Obama White House. She unfortunately doesn't know what they said. And so he was he was someone who you have these two underlying ideologies, um, and it comes together in, in 2020, in your president, who you, he was a Trump supporter, big fan of Trump, your president is saying that your government, or people in the government, are doing something that's wrong, doing something that's evil, and it's being done by Democrats. So I look at that, and I, and I think of someone who has those underlying views about anti-government sentiment or wariness about big government and dislike of Democrats. And then the guy who he thinks is his president is saying that those people who are using the levers of power in the government are then rigging an election and they are electing their guy over Trump, who is the person that you want to be president. So I think that that is that's what I learned about what what's what's motivated him. What does his story represent? Are there a lot of people like this? And what do you think the story tells us about extremism and the events that took place on January 6th? I think one of the things I came away with was how relatively easy it is to become an extremist. And I know that sounds a little strange, but if you're on the the right side of the political spectrum and you have certain views, like take Jeff Sable's views about the military-industrial complex. I mean, that's something that a lot of people on the left, it's really been an issue more that's more been on the left than on the right. It's not that uncommon for people to have views that the military is too big and there's corruption with government contractors and all of that. 
And then there's plenty of people that we can find on the on the left that, that think Republicans are evil and up to no good and destroying the country. So I guess what I'm saying is these are not views that are necessarily inherently extreme. But when you add to it a toxic political climate, which we've had for pretty much the the last four years the, of, the, of the Trump presidency. I think he would have to do a lot to convince Republicans. Everything is dialed up. Uh, that this is anything except a left-wing power grab financed by people like George Soros. So hyperbolic. The 2020 presidential election was not fair. No honest person would claim that it was fair. And you have leaders in the party, not just President Trump. I, I'm not trying to lay everything at, at his feet. But other members of the party in, in, in Congress and people in the president's orbit and on uh, Fox News and other uh, radio personalities like Rush Limbaugh saying, We've got to find out what happened because we all believe Donald Trump won this election. That Democrats are trying to steal the country away from you. The 99% media mob, the Washington swamp, Joe Biden, all desperate. They want to just call it a day and stop you from asking legitimate, tough questions about the election. They're un-American, like all this, all this stuff that really is, uh, is in my, in my view, toxic. I mean, if people, if the Democratic side was saying that about Republicans, it would be similarly toxic. So I think that you have people like Jeff Sable, who on on some level is a as a normal decent person. He he does have some underlying vulnerabilities that I talk about in the story. So he's he's not in any way a perfect person. Um, you have to wonder if a guy like that is ever going to act on his political views without the toxic climate that we've had over the last four years and accelerating in 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 twenty twenty. We'll be right back. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. And we're back. Tell us about the character witnesses in this story. So there were 30 people in Jeff's life who wrote character letters to, to the court. I would be willing to testify in court to the accuracy and truth to everything I have said in this letter. The lawyer filed them as part of his effort to get Jeff out of jail so he wouldn't be held in jail. I am here to tell you that Jeffrey Sable is a good man, a good father, a good teammate, and a good friend. It, it ultimately failed. Jeff is being held in jail until his trial or a plea deal. But they were 30 people. That was um, his parents, his sister, his brother-in-law. And Jeff is one of the few people I can actually have a conversation with about politics, and it doesn't get nasty. His friends, neighbors. From the moment I met Jeff, I could tell he was an extremely warm person. A lot of people, and overwhelmingly, they paint a picture of a guy who is a loyal friend. Smart, caring, and goofy. Um, a devoted son. The Jeff Sable that I know is not a violent man or instigator at all. That likes to help people. 
There was story after story about how he had helped fix people's cars. Uh, one time stopped on the road to help help someone he didn't even know. He would do free landscaping and fixing of, up of his rental house where he lived in Kittredge for the landlord and never asked anything in return. His girlfriend told a story about how he gave his jacket to a hiker when they were hiking a, one of the big mountains here in Colorado. We saw them at the top of the mountain freezing. I gave them one coat from my bag. Jeff gave the other coat off his back, and he went down the mountain without a coat. Story after story like that, painting a picture of a guy who has selfless qualities to him um, and a high level of loyalty and just a good all-around guy. I cannot explain his presence at the Capitol on January 6th, and I disagree strongly with the notion that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. But Jeff is, without exaggeration, the last person I would expect to harm a police officer. You know, that that's one side. And then you have another side of him that you see in the videos from January 6th, where he's acting violently. According to federal authorities, 51-year-old Jeffrey Sable of Colorado was part of this scene. I'm mad. I'm mad at Jeff, but I'm even madder at the politicians and leaders who, for weeks, stoked the election lie leading up to January 6th, and especially those same leaders and politicians that roused up a mob that morning. They made a good man like Jeff believe in and act on their lives. And then there's another, there's still another side where he was charged about four years ago um, because of violence on his son, who was then 15. And as a result, he ended up giving up custody of his son. So it wasn't the first time um, that he acted violently on, on January 6th. He has something of an anger streak and an inability to control his reactions and his moods. His ex-wife uh, alleged that you know he has some mental health struggles, all undiagnosed, so we can't speculate specifically what those might be. But it's almost like you're seeing two versions of the same person. And in one of the hearings, the judge actually referenced that and said that it was like reading uh, two different books, reading the character letters and what everyone said about him being a peaceful, nonviolent person, and then looking at the videos from January 6th and, and what he did on that day. Was there anything that surprised you personally uh, as you were reporting this story? Anything about him that reminded you of your own neighbors or people you know? I think I was just surprised at how familiar he seemed or how relatable. He's not someone who we think of right-wing extremism or domestic terrorist, right? Which is what Christopher Ray, the head of the FBI, has referred to it as. That attack, that siege, was criminal behavior, plain and simple. And it's behavior that we, the FBI, view as domestic terrorism. We think of domestic terrorists as someone who's a hardened extremist that lives and breathes their ideology, is out in the woods with, with guns, is part of a, an organized group. And that wasn't the case with Jeff. And it wasn't the case with a lot of the people who were have been arrested for the Capitol riots. There's been studies that have been done looking at their profiles 
And only 12% of the people who've been arrested and charged have had some sort of right-wing affiliation, whether it's a militia group or a hate group or, or something else. So he doesn't, he and a lot of the other people that have been arrested in the Capitol riots don't fit the profile of what we think of right-wing terrorism as. And it's kind of, it's it's a little bit frightening and, and scary because you wonder how many other incidents there could be like this, given that the views that Jeff has and the views that a lot of the Capitol rioters had about the election being stolen are still extremely prevalent in the population at large and especially among Republicans. They still believe that something horrible has happened and that Democrats and people working for Democrats have stolen the election. Yeah, I mean, Trump is still out there. Uh, you know, just a few days ago, he was doing, you know, a rally talking about how he won in 2020. That election will go down as the crime of the century, and our country is being destroyed by people who perhaps have no right to destroy it. Uh, he's talking about reinstatement. I am not the one trying to undermine American democracy. I'm the one that's trying to save it. Please remember that. From my view up here, you know, on Capitol Hill and in Washington, you know, Republicans are trying to very much turn the page on what happened on January 6th. They don't want to talk about this incident, but, you know, it's clear that these sort of false allegations, these false sort of claims of voter fraud and stolen elections, they're still very much out there. So, it sounds like you think we could see violence again. That's what some of the extremist researchers I talked to said. They're worried about it. They see it as January 6th as a potential accelerant in the way that Charlottesville was an accelerant. In the sense that you had people from all kinds of ideologies all over, if you want to call it the far right, coming together in one place staying in the same hotels, mingling on that day. Um, a lot of people who were there were there for multiple days. And it's possible that you have an overlap of some of the ideologies, like people who had anti-government sentiment are, are now tied up with hate groups or with white supremacist ideologies. And so the researchers that I talked to are concerned about this, they think there's a high potential for more violent events, especially if you have the fuel for the fire, which is a high-profile, charismatic leader, such as Trump, saying it over and over again and inspiring people. All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing. For the people that support him, he is an incredibly inspiring person, and he does have a lot of power to motivate people. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's death involved. And one of the things I that I realized about Jeff is that in his mind, and you've, you've heard this from some of the other people who've been arrested through their lawyers, in, in his mind, he, I think he would probably say he was going there for noble purposes. Now, he was completely misled because there's no evidence that the election was stolen. But in his view, it was. 
And so he's going there as he calls it a patriot warrior. But this this sense of wanting to be a hero, like something is wrong. Someone has stolen the election. Um, democracy is, you know, at the edge of a cliff. I've got to, I and others have to go and save it. Like wanting to be a hero slash G.I. Joe. Um, and so, you know, obviously it's it's wrong and it's it's you're completely misguided, but you're in saying the election is stolen, you're manipulating people's otherwise noble instincts. You're manipulating them to to try and defend something that is a is is based on lies. You've reported on extremism, you know, generally before. What what do you think it's going to take or does it take to counter something like this? If this is if Jeff is just, you know, one example of many and many more who could follow in these sorts of footsteps. I mean, what needs to happen to sort of change that? Is there some sort of figure that needs to come out and push back on this and say, this is, you know, these, these are false, you know, or is there a figure that people like Jeff could trust? What do you think needs to happen? Yeah, you, you need to take away the motivation for people wanting to act. I mean, there's always going to be extremists on both sides of the political spectrum that have the propensity for for violence. At the moment, there's the experts say there's more people on the right. They're always going to be, people are going to be animated by white supremacy. They're going to be motivated by, you know, a sense of wanting to build a militia to ward off against the government. We've, we've That's not new. We've seen that in the past. But what dragged in so many other people like Jeff Sable was this motivation to get involved in a way that they had never before. And that was because of the the view that an election was stolen. I mean, it's a serious thing. If a national election is stolen in one of the world's most important democracies. So you have to take away that reason for people like that acting. And, and that would take people in the Republican Party that the voters would listen to and trust saying there is no, besides just, you know, Liz Cheney and the lone voices out there, um, there, there's no reason to think the election was stolen. There's no threat to democracy. We still have a thriving democracy. And if you hate Democrats, then organize to get them out of office and go through those democratic channels. So that would have to happen. And then some researchers I talked to feel very strongly that there's a mental health component to people that are susceptible to propaganda and extremist views. It's easier said than done. How do you mount a national effort to combat mental health vulnerabilities? I have no idea. But but I think it's something that is worth talking about and worth understanding that there are a lot of people, Jeff included, one of the other defendants in his case, his wife has said that he has I'm just forgetting if it was by if he was bipolar or schizophrenic. He has an inoperable brain tumor, he has PTSD from military service. You know, he has a lot going on. People like that are less able to bring themselves out of rabbit holes and it's easier for them to lose their grip on reality. So helping those people would have to be part of the the solution. What do people inside the Washington bubble maybe not understand that this story illuminates? Well, certainly a lot of people 
out there on the Democratic side that are out there on social media, I see them a lot, you know, painting all of these people who were arrested as, as monsters that they should kind of rot in jail. There's a lot of that sentiment. And they should, a lot of them should and will get substantial jail time, possibly Jeff Sable as, as among that group. A lot of these people, not all of them, were motivated by what they thought were positive intentions, patriotic intentions as well. Not all of them are hardened militia members and white supremacists. I think we we can't just cast them off as these horrible people that did a horrible thing and move forward. We have to realize they were manipulated. They had vulnerabilities that allowed them to be manipulated. Um, I just don't think we should paint them as monsters who are on the other side of the, the political spectrum and that are that are all crazy. Yeah. The the Biden administration is doing some things to tackle extremism. DHS is doing a review. The Pentagon is doing some of their own um, investigation and research. But in Congress, I mean, I'm sure you've been following the headlines. They failed to create, you know, this this bipartisan commission to study this issue, the origins of what led to January 6th. I guess I'm wondering if you think that the story of a particular insurrectionist like Jeff um, given that we don't have a commission, does this sort of shed light on this broader phenomenon that's happening out across the country? I mean, I hope it does just even a little bit, because I think it's absolutely a mistake not to have a truth-finding commission. Because unless you unless you know what brought people to the Capitol and what motivated them to storm the halls of Congress, like not what, obviously, they they felt like they needed to stop the counting of electoral votes. They thought the the election was stolen, but what motivated them on a personal level? Like what made them vulnerable to the propaganda in a way that other people were not vulnerable to it? Whether it's people on the on, more on the left or in the middle, or just people who still might think the the election is was stolen, because as we mentioned, there's a, there's millions of of people who still believe that. Understanding those vulnerabilities is critical at this moment in time to figuring out how to prevent this from from happening in the future. And it's just a, a reckoning of realizing how toxic our political climate has become. And I don't think you, you want to just sweep that under the rug and say, okay, let's move on. January 6th happened. We're done. We'll lock them all up. And that's that's it. Thanks for being here, Melanie. It's great to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. And that's our show. Our producers are Adrian Hurst and Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ahmet. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you hear, subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. We'll take you behind the scenes of Capitol Hill again next week on another Playbook Deep Dive. Thanks for listening.